From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's been more than 30 years since the first Alzheimer's awareness campaign was launched on a national level. And despite the fact that there's no cure, early diagnosis is still important for lifestyle modification, for education, for the family, to know what to plan, financial planning, and a whole host of factors that make it worthwhile. Also to explain why the person's having these symptoms, because otherwise you may attribute it to some other factors and it may in fact be due to the disease process itself. Also on the program, will new colon cancer screening guidelines change how doctors test for the disease? And it's that time of year when seasonal affective disorder returns. We'll have some useful tips on coping with SAD. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It was on November 2nd, 1982, that then-President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating the last week of November as National Alzheimer's Disease Week. Today, one out of nine people, 65 and older, have Alzheimer's. Since that presidential proclamation 33 years ago, 33 years ago. Yeah. Alzheimer's disease. Were you I, I yeah, was around. You were born, yeah. I was around. Yes, barely, huh? <laughs> Alzheimer's disease has gotten a lot of attention, including designation of the entire month of November, now known as Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. In the studio to talk about progress since the 1980s is Dr. Ronald Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a neurologist and director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Peterson. Thanks very much, Tracy. Oh, so, President Ronald Reagan's doctor, did you have anything to do with the fact that he designated this this week in, in November as National Alzheimer's Disease Week? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I wasn't born back in 1980. Yeah, oh, give me that. You were his doctor. And you, uh, as I recall, you were on the program the day that it was announced that he had Alzheimer's disease. You knew, but pretty much nobody else did. Well, that's right. That was November of 1994, and Mrs. Reagan gathered together all of the physicians who had been involved with the president's care and said that they were going to make an announcement that afternoon that the president did, in fact, have Alzheimer's disease and that if we were contacted thereafter, that we would say nothing about that, and that's what we uh, abided to her rule. You know, I just realized that uh, you couldn't have had anything to do with it because you didn't even know that he had Alzheimer's disease, nor did he when he proclaimed this. It was 82 when he proclaimed it as nature. So, okay, I was, uh, yeah, totally wrong there. He didn't know, you didn't know, and you didn't know him. That's correct. I mean, 1982, he was in his first term and was uh, doing quite well at that time. One of my favorite anecdotes, though, of this relationship with uh, the former president was that if not for President Reagan, it might have taken a lot longer for the wheels to get going on studying this disease and helping patients who are diagnosed, patients and families. That's right. I, uh, when the, the president and Mrs. Reagan decided to make that announcement, it was quite courageous, but it did certainly open up the door for a lot of other people who may be experiencing those symptoms and families that had Alzheimer's disease in, in the family, that in fact, uh, if the President of the United States could get this disease, anybody can get this disease. Can you think back to that time when you realized how impactful that was going to be? Did you think, oh, I bet this is going to really help us and we'll have this figured out and solved? 
But we certainly were pleased that he was willing to make that uh, declaration, and we hope that it would jumpstart a lot of interest and an awareness of the disease, and at the same time, at the federal level, increase uh, funding for Alzheimer's disease. But we knew we were going to be in for the long haul, and we still are in for the long haul in this disease. It's not a simple disease, and it's going to take a lot of effort. We all want to know. Are you making progress? I mean, is there is there hope, or are you think at the end of the uh, this whole uh, effort, you're going to say, "Well, it's just the brain wearing out, and there's not much we can do about it." No, I think we are making significant progress. And you look back to where we were, say, three to five years ago, we understand so much more about the biology of the disease. That is, what's causing this abnormality in the brain. Now we're able to identify those proteins in the brain that have been uh, labeled as being the hallmarks of the disease. We can do that in living people now, and this gives us a target to shoot for with therapeutics. So if we do a drug trial now, we can not only enroll people who have the clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, but we can identify which of those individuals actually have the abnormal protein in the brain before we start treating them. And we can measure that after the treatment trial. And one of the things that you offer now for patients is there are some medications that can maybe help to, I don't know, delay the onset of, the onset of some of those symptoms? Well, those are called disease-modifying therapies, and okay. those are the ones we're trying to, uh, trying to evaluate at this point in time. The, disease, the, the drugs that are on the market right now are symptomatic drugs, so they help the people with the symptoms, but they really do not have an impact on the underlying di- disease process itself. So those are the disease-modifying therapies that are being studied right now. It seems like every adult that I know thinks they have ha, have Alzheimer's disease or at one time or another. Anytime you have a brain hiccup, you go, oh, is this <laughs> the beginning of Alzheimer's disease? So how do you really know if, if you've got it? And as I recall in the past, you would say that it, to really make the diagnosis, you have to do an autopsy on the brain. Well, technically that's correct. I mean, to make the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, you have to see the evidence of the plaque and the tangle in the disease. The plaque is made out of this protein called amyloid. The tangle is made out of this protein called tau. So the only way you formerly could detect that would be at the time of passing and looking at the brain under the microscope. But now with our new imaging techniques, spinal fluid techniques, we can actually actually measure these proteins in living people. So if a person has the clinical symptoms that look like Alzheimer's disease, forgetfulness, trouble with thinking, affecting your daily functioning, and the person has one of these scans, say, that shows the amyloid protein in the brain, we can be pretty certain that this is, in fact, Alzheimer's disease. Is there a typical course? I mean, there are some patients that maybe, you know, have early onset Alzheimer's or some delayed, but is there a typical patient, a typical course for this disease? We can talk about a a typical pattern of clinical progression, usually starting with forgetfulness, where the person starts to forget incidental items, and then that progresses to forgetting of important information, things that they formerly would not have forgotten. They start forgetting those items. People around them, family members start to notice, you know, gee, dad isn't remembering as well as he formerly did. That is a typical pattern, but there are all kinds of variations on the theme. Sometimes there can be behavioral abnormalities, sometimes language difficulties, difficulties with understanding the spoken word, reading, writing. Sometimes there are visual difficulties where people start to misplace objects, cannot reach for common objects in space. 
And so these unusual presentations can be a part of Alzheimer's disease, but up and away, forgetfulness is the predominant symptom. And the typical course of the disease, how long between diagnosis and demise? Uh, It's a long period in general. And so we say after diagnosis to death, perhaps 8 to 10 years. But again, that's very variable. There can be very aggressive cases that decline in a few years, and there are some cases that last 20 years, but in general, 8 to 10 years. Why is it that Alzheimer's disease is so much more prominent than other types of dementias, or is it is it not? I think it is. I think if you, again, define Alzheimer's disease by the presence of these plaques and tangles in the brain, that in fact it is more common than other degenerative dementias, things like dementia with Lewy bodies, frontotemporal lobar degeneration. These are other degenerative diseases of the brain. But if you look at Alzheimer's disease defined by those pathologic characteristics, it is most common. Now, let me make sure I understand this. So it used to be that you could interview a patient, and from the history and what the family told you, you might suspect Alzheimer's disease. And then there were some tests that patients could take, evaluate their memory. But now you can actually get objective evidence that someone has Alzheimer's disease in two ways. Number one, the scan, which can show you the abnormal protein in the brain, but you can also measure this protein by taking out a sample of spinal fluid? That's correct. I mean, we still do the clinical evaluation, so we still have to see if the person has the cognitive impairment, the memory problem, the behavioral problems, things of that nature. But that gets you to the diagnosis of dementia. And dementia can be due to a variety of different causes. Again, Alzheimer's disease being up and away the most common form of dementia, especially in aging. But now we can nail down the specificity of the disease itself by looking at either the scan, as you mentioned, Tom, or doing a spinal tap. And in the spinal tap, we can see evidence of the amyloid protein and the tau protein. We're talking with Dr. Ronald Peterson about Alzheimer's disease research and treatment. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, myth or matter of fact, everyone has at least some risk of Alzheimer's disease. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, neurologist Dr. Ronald Peterson, truly an expert on Alzheimer's disease. We've talked about the symptoms. We've talked about the way you diagnose it and the new ways you have to diagnose it. We touched on treatment, and I know that's the difficult part of the equation now. So tell us about the drugs that are now available, if they're really that effective, but what you hope to see in the in the not-too-distant future? Well, the drugs that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration presently work on chemical systems in the brain, so-called neurotransmitters in the brain, that are involved with memory, thinking, attention, and behavior. So we can modulate those a bit. We can adjust them up, adjust them down, and it improves behavior and helps with some of the symptoms. But it really doesn't do anything with regard to the underlying disease process itself. So drugs under investigation now are these uh, disease-modifying therapies, and these are medications. They could be antibodies. They could be vaccines. They could be other forms of medicine that actually get at the underlying proteins involved in the disease process. So we talked about this amyloid protein as forming the plaques in the brain. There are antibodies out there now being investigated that will actually remove that protein from the brain and hopefully ameliorate symptoms along the way. Wow, and when do you think those might be available? 
Well, they're under investigation right now, and some of these trials still have another two, three, or four years to go. So we're realistically talking about out that uh, duration of time if, in fact, these trials are positive. All right, myth or matter of fact. Everyone has at least some risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Is that a myth or a matter of fact? Well, it probably is true insofar as the leading risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is still age. So if we live long enough, we will all age into the risk pattern of Alzheimer's disease. And so I think it's a possibility that virtually anybody could develop the disease. Does it uh, involve the sexes pretty much equally? Well, that's a good question. There is some evidence out there that women may be at higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Now, if you look at it from the standpoint of how many people have Alzheimer's disease, there are more women than men because women live longer. But more recently, there has been some research that has indicated there may be biologic characteristics of the way the woman's brain ages could be hormonally related, could be related to other factors that may make them at higher risk for developing the disease. You mentioned uh, using a scan or using a spinal tap to figure out it before a person passes away if they have Alzheimer's disease. What about genetics? Is there going to be a piece somewhere that you can look at someone's genome and see that they have the Alzheimer's gene? I think within a degree we can be able to we will be able to predict who's going to develop it based on a genetic profile. Now again remember there are two forms of the disease when you talk about it from a genetic perspective. There's the rare form that is truly genetically determined and in those families people have a 50/50 risk of getting the disease. Maybe 1% of all disease in those situations people usually are in their 40s and 50s when they develop the disease, and half the members in the family get it. So it's very dramatic. The vast majority, so-called sporadic disease, still can be influenced by gene susceptibilities or the likelihood. It just alters the risk. It's not deterministic, but it alters the risk of somebody's likelihood of developing the disease. And there's one in particular called apolipoprotein E, which is a gene that codes for a protein. We all have this protein, circulates in our blood, It transports lipids like cholesterol. It comes in three varieties, E2, E3, and E4. And it turns out that the E4 variety is overrepresented in Alzheimer's disease. So you inherit one form of this protein from your mom and one from your dad. So you get all combinations of 2, 3, 2, 4, 3, 3, 3, 4. If you inherit the 4 variety, your risk is increased by maybe 3-fold or 4-fold. However, if you're unlucky and you inherit two forms, one from mom, one from dad, then your risk is up maybe 10 or 14-fold. Yet it doesn't mean you're absolutely going to get the disease, but your risk is up. I saw a story on television about a family that is like the first group that you mentioned, where there is the definite family history. The story was about how that family is helping researchers. How is that helping in figuring out this disease? Well, in those families where they have the genetic tendency, if they inherit it, they're going to get the disease, you can study when they're going to get the disease. So in those families, perhaps say their parents got the disease at age 50 or 52, they now are at age 45, but they have the genetic tendency, you know that within five or six or seven years, they're going to get the disease. So now drugs are being tried in these families because of the definite onset of the drug, excuse me, onset of the symptoms in the very near future. So these are good individuals to study for the effectiveness of these drugs.
Because in the past, you didn't really have a group of people to study because you didn't know who had it until after they had died. That's right. In the sporadic form of the disease, of course, there are some people who may develop it, some people who may not develop it. Even if they have these uh, biologic characteristics, as we talked about earlier, a positive scan, they may or may not develop the symptoms, and you don't know when they're going to develop the symptoms. But in these families that have the strong inherited tendency, you do know that with certainty. Because at the present time, there's no good way to alter the course of the disease. I presume it's not all that important to get this diagnosed early? No, I disagree with that, Tom. I, I think it is very important to actually identify the uh, disease as early as possible. While it's true there's no magic bullet out there that's going to erase the disease tomorrow, I think it's very important for lifestyle modification, for education, for the family to know what to plan, financial planning, and a whole host of factors that make it worthwhile to know what's going on. Also to explain why the person's having these symptoms, because otherwise you may attribute it to some other factors and it may in fact be due to the disease process itself. Wow, and it's just so interesting to me that you have these additional studies available, huge advances in MRI scanning so you can actually see the abnormal protein and measure the abnormal protein in the spinal fluid. So you've got a, what your accuracy of diagnosis must be close to 100%. In fact, it has gone up to about 100% now because if you see the protein on one of these scans, autopsy studies have been done following the people who have had these scans. If the scan's positive, they have amyloid in the brain virtually 100% of the time. We have about a minute left. If you could point to one development in research or something that has recently happened that shows great promise, anything that you can leave us with? Well, there's a, a drug study out there now that reported results earlier this year showing that they were studying a particular antibody to remove this amyloid protein from the brain. They studied people for over the course of 12 months, scanned them at the beginning, scanned them at the end, and in fact, the drug was able to remove this amyloid protein from the brain in a dose-dependent fashion, meaning that the larger dose, the more the amyloid was removed. And importantly, there was a clinical correspondence. So those people who got the highest dose of the drug actually did better clinically after one year. So this is the first time that we've seen the combination of clinical improvement or stabilization coupled with the biologic action that we expected from the drug, removal of the amyloid protein from the brain. It's pretty There's exciting, yeah. yeah. There's hope. Thanks very much, Dr. Peterson. A great update on Alzheimer's during Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. Good to have you here. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Dr. Ronald Peterson is a neurologist and director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, new colon cancer screening guidelines are about to be issued by a leading government advisory group. We'll talk with an expert about what the new guidelines mean for you. And it's the time of year when decreasing sunlight brings on seasonal affective disorder. Stay with us to find out the best ways to manage SAD. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
We are lucky to have vaccines for many illnesses, including the flu, chickenpox, and polio. Now we may be able to add high cholesterol to that list. In the journal Vaccine, researchers show a vaccine reduces LDL or bad cholesterol in mice and may be better than taking statins alone. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says the vaccine, which is likely still about five to ten years away, could be an advantage for people who can't take statins because of side effects such as muscle aches. It may also be good for people who can't swallow pills and for those who have cardiovascular disease or are at high risk. A protein called PCSK9 is key to making this vaccine work. Blocking it helps your body break down and metabolize bad cholesterol, reducing your risk of heart disease or stroke. Dr. Kopetsky says the vaccine is a great concept, but it will be some time before you can go in and get a flu and cholesterol shot at the same time. And now, coffee. It's a morning ritual for millions of people, and research shows it might do more for your body than just jumpstart the day. Coffee and caffeine may be good for us. Coffee's potential health benefits have been known for a while, says Mayo Clinic nutrition expert Dr. Donald Hensrud, and a recent Harvard study shows moderate coffee intake may lower the risk of premature death from certain illnesses. Up to three, four, maybe even five cups a day of coffee may contribute to a decreased risk of type 2 diabetes, uh, Parkinson's disease, liver disease and liver cancer, possibly heart disease. Decaf or regular are shown to be both beneficial, and the theory is that certain compounds in coffee decrease inflammation and insulin resistance. But be careful because coffee can cause unpleasant side effects for some people, heartburn, irritability, or insomnia. So go ahead, pour yourself a cup of coffee. It may just help you live a healthier life. I'm Vivian Williams, and for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Screening guidelines. We hear a lot about them in the news these days, and they're meant to provide some standard for when and how to check for a disease or a condition. We've talked about the recent controversy regarding the mammograms and how often a woman should have one of those. And they do often help prevent disease or at least potentially reduce its impact. But screening guidelines aren't always easy to understand or follow, and certainly there's some confusion out there. Colon cancer screening has been proven to reduce both the incidence of the disease and deaths from it. And one organization that publishes colon cancer screening guidelines, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, is about to issue new screening recommendations. In the studio to help us understand these new guidelines is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Lindbergh. Thanks for having me. I guess the first question is, who is USPST? What was it again? <laughs> USPSTF. <laughs> the USPSTF. It must be an important group. And do, do people listen to them, and are they reliable, and should we listen to what they have to say? I, I think the answer to the last question is yes, we should listen to what they have to say. They are a dedicated team of health professionals who try to come up with an objective summary of all the data that are out there to either support or, in some instances, uh, dissuade people from following certain tests and procedures. So what are their new guidelines, their new screening guidelines? 
So the colon cancer or colorectal cancer screening guidelines are really an update from guidelines that were published by this group in 2008. And this is a government organization, correct? Uh, this is a, a group that uh, informs, uh, provides recommendations that government agencies typically would follow. Okay. Um, so in 2008, the USPSTF issued their last set of colorectal cancer screening guidelines. Much has changed in that time. There are some new tests. There are some new studies that uh, provide additional information um, to support uh, or, or inform the tests that were previously recommended. And what's different? So the major differences, uh, I would say, would be at a couple different levels. Um, stool blood testing has been an accepted standard for colon cancer screening for a long time. Um, there are different ways to test the stool for microscopic blood, if you will. There's been an evolution in technology so that now something called fecal immunochemical testing or FIT testing is more widely accepted. It's probably a more accurate test than what used to be called fecal occult blood testing based on different technology. So FIT testing in place of occult uh, fecal occult blood testing performed in other ways. Um, there are some changes in the intervals um, and combinations of tests. So flexible sigmoidoscopy is um, technically an endoscopic procedure. It involves a scope that sees a short ways into the lower intestine. It's a short colonoscope. It's a of. short colonoscope, and flexible sigmoidoscopy now in combination with one of these FIT tests is recommended at a different interval than it was previously. It used to be five years between flexible sigmoidoscopies. Now it's 10 years three years between fecal occult blood testing now every year with the FIT testing when you do those things in combination. And then lastly, there are um, a couple of tests that have uh, really just started to um, emerge on the colorectal cancer screening landscape over the last several years. One, CT colonography. Um, CT colonography is still listed as an alternate or alternative test in the latest round, latest draft of the USPSTF guidelines. Is this what we also call virtual colonoscopy? Exactly. Yep. Okay. It's, a, it's an x-ray test that, in essence, um, the, the radiologist can see virtually inside the colon and rectum to look for polyps and cancers. Do you still have to have a PrEP? You still have to have a prep, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other uh, newer test is called FitDNA. Um, it's marketed commercially as a product called Cologuard, but it's a stool test that looks not only for blood but also for some uh, cellular markers, DNA and other methylation markers, uh, something that uh, the laboratory technology has now allowed us to, to find these things and measure them in stool. So that's a test you could do at home, right? You, you take a, a specimen and and have the UPS guy pick it up and it's sent somewhere and then they call the results to your doctor or you? That That's it uh, in, in essence, yes. But that's one of the newest on the scene. So is that part of this recommendation? It's part of the recommendation. Um, if you, when, when somebody would go to the trouble of reading the draft guidelines, the tests are broken out not in a prioritized or hierarchical order, but there are um, maybe the initial set of, of tests, and then there are two of the ones I mentioned that are listed as alternatives, may be right for some people, may not be right for everybody. Who is it right for? Is this for the people who don't want to have a colonoscopy or are at so such low risk they don't need a colonoscopy, or who is that test for? Well, interestingly, there's really only um, a couple groups that have come out and said colonoscopy is the preferred screening test. Um, most groups have said that uh, any screening is better than no screening. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that uh, the population where colorectal cancer screening is applicable is 
individuals over the age of 50 or 50 and older who don't have um, risk factors or known risk factors for colon cancer. Those would include a strong family history of colon cancers and sometimes other cancers, conditions called inflammatory bowel disease or ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, or patients with a previous history of colon polyps. None of those groups would technically fit criteria for screening. So bottom line, um, who ought to get screened, when, and is there any difference between males and females? The, the general guideline would be if you are 50 and older, you should talk with your clinician about getting a colorectal cancer screening test and finding the one that is right for you. Um, men and women should be screened. Um, there are some maybe, uh, again, some differences by uh, racial ethnic groups that are starting to emerge as well. So African-Americans seem to be at higher risk for colorectal cancer at a younger age. So some guidelines would support screening in that population at about age 45 rather than 50. So 50 is key, but if you have a family history of colon cancer, would you start the testing earlier? Yes, in, in most instances. And that would be at age 40 or 45? or Depends on the family history. Um, for some genetic syndromes where there's a strong predisposition to colon cancer, we might even start screening in teenage years. Hmm. And what might some of those conditions be? Something called familial adenomatous polyposis, where the colon, for whatever reason, uh, develops hundreds to thousands of polyps. It's an uh, abnormality in a gene called the APC gene. There's another relatively common uh, syndrome called hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, or HNPCC, more commonly referred to now as Lynch syndrome. Um, that one has fewer polyps, but you can develop cancers in the colon and rectum, also in female organs. Um, in the upper digestive tract and, and other body areas. So let me just get, make sure I understand this. If I'm 50 years old, male or female, with no family history of cancer, should I get a colonoscopy? Uh, you should get a colon cancer screening test, colonoscopy being one of several endorsed options. All right, and that's the decision that you would make with your doctor, whether to get the colonoscopy or one or the other tests that you mentioned. Correct. Thank All right, you. thanks for being on the program, Dr. Lindbergh. We've been talking about the new USPSTF guidelines for colon cancer screening with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Paul Lindbergh. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tracy. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back with daylight hours waning as we head into winter, many people... People start feeling depressed and listless, signs of seasonal affective disorder. Program co-host Dr. Sanj Kakar joins me as we explore ways to stay on top of SAD. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tis the season to be jolly, or so go the lyrics of a popular holiday song. But this time of year, as the number of daylight hours wane as we head into winter, is a not-so-jolly time for people who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD. SAD can leave you feeling sluggish and depressed. You may have difficulty sleeping and even have thoughts of death or suicide. In the studio to help us better understand seasonal affective disorder and how it's treated is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. William Leisure. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Leisure. Thanks for having me. It's, um, I suppose, the butt of a joke for some people that don't suffer from SAD. They just go, oh, yeah, it's my seasonal affective disorder. But for people who really do have this, it's quite serious, correct? Absolutely. It can be quite impairing, you know, leaving people really not wanting to get out of bed, making it difficult to go to work, get through the day. Um, engage less with their family. 
So um, certainly that can be you know, really impactful on people's lives. Probably not as much of a problem at the equator, but the farther north of the equator you go, the more serious it is. Exactly. And there's some you know, debate about that, but we do see some uh, variation and in, in, uh, increasing prevalence the further away you get from the equator, so some with the northern latitudes. Is it considered a mental illness? It's classified in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, as a variant of depression. So the actual name for it is um, major depressive disorder with a seasonal pattern. So it's more than just, you know, feeling a little bit less energetic um, in the winter months. It's actually, you know, is a disorder that can certainly impact people's lives significantly. Well, I don't know about you, Tracy, but waking up every day is difficult enough. <laughs> but to say I have seasonal affective disorder, I don't know. Um, so how, how do you how do you diagnose it? Well, that's right. You know, everybody, uh, well, most people uh, recognize that the days are getting shorter. Often feel uh, maybe a little tired when they're waking up um, when it's not light outside. Maybe even going home when it's not light outside. So experiencing less light during the day. It's normal for a lot of people to have you know just less energy. Um, sometimes feel a little bit more sluggish, but there are formalized criteria which are actually similar um, in most ways to the criteria for a major depressive episode. Um, Those include experiencing either depressed mood or anhedonia or both, um, and then several other um, symptoms that are consistent with major depressive episode. What was that you just said, anhedonia? I'm sorry, anhedonia is... um, (laughs) decreased um, interest or pleasure in activities that you typically do enjoy. So with the other kind of caveats with seasonal affective disorder specifier is that it has to occur uh, at a specified time throughout the year. Now, with most people, that's in the winter months um, and then resolving in the spring. Uh, And by definition, it has to start um, at one time of year and then resolve at another time of year. There are some situations where it actually can occur with some people at other times of year, but obviously most of us um, are most familiar with it during those winter months. Those people would be vampires, right? They don't yeah. want any sunlight. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, but what, what, how does the sunlight make any difference? What does the sunlight do to your brain? Well, the, um, there's some uh, debate about the exact um, mechanisms of what causes seasonal affective disorder. Um, melatonin is thought to be implicated um, by some individuals. Serotonin is another, and that's a, a neurotransmitter. What do those things do? Um, Well, melatonin is um, something that your body uses to help help get you tired at night and and go to sleep, and some people take over-the-counter melatonin to help augment that process. Um, Serotonin is a a neurotransmitter that's implicated, you know, in in many forms of depression, and we use some of the most commonly used uh, medications for depression are um, medications that help increase the available levels of serotonin. So to break it down even further, then the serotonin helps wake you up and the melatonin helps put you to sleep. I don't know if it's quite that, okay. that simple, um, okay. but certainly we know that um, if, if there's not adequate levels of serotonin, then that can certainly lead to people feeling more depressed. So Dr. Leisure, this morning driving in, you see a lot of school kids standing out waiting for the school bus. Has there been a link to children having seasonal affective disorder and poor performance at school in the winter months? I'm not aware of that link. And actually, um, typically, we don't see seasonal affective disorder in kids, you know, maybe more so in the, the later teens, you know, once you get above 15 or 16. But typically below that, you don't see that um, association. It's more in the adults. However, um, there is a greater prevalence in younger adults than there is in older adults. Um, so, you know, in the you know, 20s to 50s, but once you get, you know, higher than that, 
um, it's less prevalent in, in that population. Oh, that's interesting. And with um, women as uh, have a little higher prevalence as well, you know, commonly um, cited as four to one prevalence of, of women greater than men. However, there's some question, is is that just some selection bias sure. um, that they're being identified more than the men? And so what should people do if they, you know, they can struggle through the holidays and then January comes and just hits them right. <laughs> so hard? Sure. What should people be doing? Well, there's a few treatments that are um, have found to be effective for seasonal affective disorder. The most commonly known and, and probably the most commonly studied are um, light boxes or light treatment. Mm-hmm. And with that, there's... there's um, some specific details about the treatment. It's not just, um, you know, turning on a light in the morning. Um, there's a special intensity of the light that's been studied the most and found to be the most effective, and that's 10,000 lux, and lux is a measure of intensity of light. Um, these are available, you know, commercially. Sometimes people's insurance will um, pay for a portion of them. Sometimes the deductible is as much as if they went online and found it or went to a, mm. you know, a, a retailer and found it. So, um, but 10,000 lux, usually somewhere around 12 to 24 inches away, um, you know, average around 18 inches, um, for about 30 minutes every morning. Um, ideally, the earlier the better. Um, not that you have to wake up earlier just to do that, but um, you know, not necessarily waiting till mid to late morning to do it. You know, sometime around the time when you get up would be best, and it can be done um, when somebody's getting ready or eating breakfast or that sort of thing. So then, that light from that light box helps with the serotonin levels. Well, Is that, that the thought. Uh, potentially, um, certainly, it can help with um, melatonin levels to some degree, um, and it's important that the light actually get into the eyes, you know, just, you know, having it uh, shining on your back isn't really effective. (laughs) And also tanning beds aren't effective for seasonal affective disorder because um, the light's not getting into your eyes in those cases. And, you know, there's other risks associated with the UV rays of of tanning beds as well. But um, it's the importance of the light actually getting into your eyes um, that is effective. And just to kind of give an idea about, you know, that level of intensity, the 10,000 lux, so um, you know, most office settings is somewhere around three to 500 lux. Um, an overcast day, maybe around 1,000 lux. And then, you know, direct sunlight can be anywhere from 30,000 to 100,000 lux. So just to kind of give an idea of what that intensity means. And apart from light therapy, are there anything else people could do to try and prevent this? There are a couple of other things um, that are studied, you know, m- more as um, treatment, but also to some degree with prevention. And, and going back to the light therapy, um, if it is effective for people, um, reinitiating it in the early fall months is actually um, found to be beneficial for helping to prevent. Um, so sometime, you know, in you know September, maybe early October, um, before the time changes, starting to do that again can help prevent it. There's a um, form of psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and a variant of that called um, cognitive behavioral therapy for seasonal affective disorder, which is actually um, found to be effective, you know, potentially equally as effective as light therapy, um, but possibly even more effective at preventing it in future years. That's, there was just a, a recent study that came out a couple weeks ago um, demonstrating that. I think there's more research to be done to, mm. to help determine if that's a primary treatment or you know, maybe a secondary treatment. Um, but certainly some promise there, particularly for people who the light therapy um, doesn't work as well for. And then medication, you know, antidepressant medications um, have been studied to, and found to be effective as well. But those don't work like a painkiller. I mean, you have to you have to have that in your system and kind of ramp work your way to January and February. Exactly. <laughs> and there's been um, there's some debate about is it 
better to continue it, you know, if you're somebody who has seasonal affective disorder on a, on a regular basis, continue it um, or, you know, stop it in the spring and then restart it again in the, in the early fall or late summer. Um, I think the jury's still out a little bit on that, but um, certainly we know that they can be effective. Very good. Well, thanks for being on the program, Dr. Leisure. We've been talking about seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, with Mayo Clinic psychiatrist Dr. William Leisure. Thanks, Dr. Leisure. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. Stool DNA testing was co-developed between Mayo Clinic and Exact Sciences. Mayo Clinic has a financial interest in the commercialized stool DNA test, Colaguard. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.